I'm Robin Amlo of IBS Intelligence, and I'm joined by Andrew Kessler, Chief Technology Officer and co-founder of Zenota. Zenota is working on making real-world assets, not just digital currencies, tradable via blockchain. Now, what are you actually working on? We have spent a lot of time realizing uh, that there were sort of a key number of components missing from traditional cryptocurrencies. Your answer can be found in two parts. The first part is understanding how you take a cryptocurrency into a crypto market. And then from there, how do you build a real world link from the crypto market into traditional markets? Um, there's a very good definition for a market from a branch of economics referred to as economic reality. And economic reality assumes that there are certain economic objects. These are things like price, value, commodities, goods, cash, and exchange. And if you have these economic objects and you allow them to interact, what will spontaneously emerge is a market. And so with that thinking in mind, we can do a sort of a quick checklist in our brain and ask how many of these things required to construct a market from digital objects or from economic objects, how many of them are truly digital? So do we believe, for instance, that we have digital cash as a solved problem? Is Bitcoin truly digital cash? In our analysis, we don't believe that it achieved the objective of being cash. It's treated, if anything, more like a commodity or something closer to gold. And so it doesn't have the, the correct economic characteristics that we associate with a means of payment. And then we might ask ourselves, okay, what is, a, what is an electronic good? It might seem like a, a silly question because you might say a Bitcoin could be thought of as an electronic good. Again, I'm not so sure it's a, it would be defined as such. The problem with uh, electronic goods in their native format is you can copy them. And this has been the sort of the bane of, of Microsoft and the like to try and control copy number. And so they've got license numbers and serial numbers that you have to type into authenticated product. But this is all assuming that uh, access and restricted access is a good way to control a digital good. And we say to ourselves that uh, with the advent of the internet, uh, access-based control as a mechanism for ownership is terrible because the whole purpose of the internet is to give you access. And if that's the thing that's going to undo your ownership model, then you don't really have uh, digital goods the way that you have physical goods. And so the first uh, key cornerstone technology of the Zenata platform is a data formatting technology that allows data to behave much closer to a physical good. We call that the smart data protocol. And we don't have to go into the technical details now, but now that we can demonstrate that we can construct real digital goods that behave more characteristically uh, to physical goods in that they can't be copied, and we can explain how that is uh, possible through blockchain technology, we can now define exchange. And so the core component of our ledger is that we trade one digital good for a certain number of digital cash coins, I suppose you could think of it in that way. And that corrects the behavioral uh, thinking around the economic question. So Catalini and Gantz, I think it was 2017, they understood there was a paradox in crypto. On the one hand, I want to hold my Bitcoin to catch more value as the price goes up. And on the other hand, I should be wanting to spend it if it's to behave as a currency. And so what do I do? Do I hold it or do I spend it? Having a dual double entry, which is the, is the cornerstone of our ledger, allows you to spend your cryptocurrency to receive a crypto good. And I see the crypto good as having the value and the cryptocurrency as a means of payment. And so we go back to traditional economic thinking. And this is quite fundamental and very important because it also allows us to price digital goods. 
you know, I, I look at these other ledgers and they, they're sort of, they just Alice gave Bob five Bitcoin and nobody knows why. It looks like charitable acts of giving. And so the ledger itself doesn't fulfill any pricing function, which is, as we described in economic reality, price and pricing is a critical cornerstone to a sort of a, a more uh, capitalist view of what markets should look like. So we, we were able to demonstrate through the dual double entry, the ability to create a file that is provably scarce, like a JPEG or a PDF uh, that cannot be infinitely copied, that can be assigned scarcity and can be traded for coins. And as soon as we had that, uh, the realization was that we can now use a file to represent in electronic space a provably unique and scarce object in the real world, which is the second part of the answer to your question. And so, for example, the blockchain will now know through a smart QR code or a physical identifier on, let's say, a fine bottle of wine, that there is only one fine bottle of wine that's in a bonded warehouse. Fine wines are a good example of how you can create interesting financial instruments of real world objects. You know, the man in the street can now invest in a box containing a group of fine wines and receive a sort of a, um, I wouldn't say a dividend, but a kind of a fractional payout when those bottles are auctioned at some later stage. But this requires that your, your digital documentation is as scarce and uniquely identifiable as the physical good under management. Uh, and so while no system that extends to the physical world is 100% automated, you know, you have to worry about issues like theft, the quality of the bonded warehouse, providing the service, if the physical good has left in the condition in which it's arrived, these are always uh, physical challenges. But the, the, the point is that in a normal logistical operation or normal management, most of your issue is not really the physical uh, storage and transport of the object. Uh, that tends to be handled pretty well. Uh, you know, shipping and the containerization of cargo, uh, these, are, these are solved sort of issues to a large extent. The real issue is trying to keep the proof, uh, bills of lading, electronic wables, uh, how things move in the practical space. Who, uh, what an interesting, uh, this is maybe uh, a bit of a tangent, but it's worth mentioning. Bills of lading could be used to represent financial trade and transfer of ownership when goods are in transport. Good luck representing that in an electronic form where you have to make sure that you're dealing with the right copy, a singular copy, and this copy has been notarized in terms of who the previous owner was and who the intended owner was. So, in, in short, how do machines realize, in the absence of human controllers, who the owner of a particular document is? On what basis do they make this decision? Uh, do they make this decision because they were programmed to do so by another human who is fallible? Or is there some sort of quantitative measure that they can assess to make a decision for themselves as to the state of ownership or the rights assigned to a singular file? And so what our blockchain technology enables when I say blockchain, we were really talking about Bitcoin style blockchain, which has a particular um, technical architecture. Um, so we can at least map the certificate to the object and the certificate to the payment. And so those matches are all done one is to one is to one. And a significant addition to the Zenata technology is that we've tried to uh, understand a legal framework. So we've invented a large body of private law that people can choose to opt into or opt out of as a way to do things like arbitration or alternate dispute resolution uh, should there be a contest as to whether a certain contract has been fulfilled or if a particular good has been solved in good, sta uh, solved in good standing. But also you have to tackle issues surrounding 
imposed law, data regulation, compliance issues. How do you tackle this? So the first thing to realize, there was a, a famous early hack on the Ethereum network, the DAO hack. If memory serves, there was about $150 million siphoned from a smart contract by a certain attacker. And Ethereum had originally taken the position that code is law, that whatever's coded up, so it shall be. And what happened was when the attack was happening, the attacker used the following argument. He said, I did nothing but exploit the code. And if code is law, then you might call it theft, but I call it just using code weakness to my advantage. And so he tried to say, but if your argument is that code is law, I should be entitled to my winnings. And the response from the Ethereum community is, but that was not the spirit of the contract that was written. And so they acknowledged that code is not law. You have to go to very abstract notions of what was the spirit of the intended outcome. And even that is now being recognized. And so uh, with this in mind, the legal question becomes quite interesting. You have to comply with mandatory law and national law. You have to deal with issues like spirit. And so your governance framework, and to a large extent, a lot of the the modern uh, compliance frameworks, GDPR, CCPA, they kind of fly in the face of uh, financial legislation, which you have reporting responsibility to the receiver. You have to know your customer. And so these two regulatory uh, frameworks seem to be at war with one another. And you've got a a third spark to a a perfect uh, storm or perfect flame. And that is that uh, crypto or uh, cryptographic ledgers persist indefinitely, which seems to violate any notion of privacy. So if my knowledge is being written permanently to a ledger and can never be erased, how do we know that the cryptographic measures of today will stand up in 100 years? And so maybe my, my privacy won't be violated right now, but with quantum computing, what happens then? So there are, there are massive challenges, and we've solved these massive challenges on three main fronts. The first is that we have delivered a proof-of-work network that has three main node types. So we have specialized nodes that handle specialized functions. The first of the nodes is called a compute node. It's responsible for executing service levels. So one of the things that you can do on our network is you can measure as a quantitative index how much energy is being consumed by the network uh, during the transaction. So if you're doing a carbon credit trade, you can stipulate as a service level that the amount of carbon burns while registering my carbon trade should be less than the value of the carbon trade. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. You can also stipulate that the security levels should be higher than a certain amount uh, before high-value assets get transferred over our network. So with that in mind, we've really tried to be industrial and enterprise-focused in writing our our ledger. It supports uh, programmable service levels. But more so, because what the compute node does, it takes all the transactions and puts them into a well-formed block. It then gives that well-formed block to the miners to verify. And so while we have fully distributed verification, the miners uh, in our system are not responsible for putting the block together. And because a specific machine is mandated with putting the block together, it can be given instructions. So for example, you can, as part of your GDPR compliance, your right to be forgotten, you can instruct the compute node, which has a fixed IP address and is known to all parties, it can be given the instruction not to include certain things in blocks at the will of the rightful owner, which it can verify. And so we have a mechanism to inject governance through provable ownership. But this this is a very strange form of governance because it's governance without control. This isn't us as a central authority imposing our will on something, but we give a, a space through the compute node where people are their own data controllers, where people can agree 
to apply certain sanction lists to their payments. And so that's where we can get around a lot of the compliance and privacy issues. And the second uh, big way that we won uh, the debate is that our data formatting technology keeps your file, your JPEG or your PDF or whatever it is that you want to place under blockchain governance. That actual resource sits on your local machine. The counter receipt for it is what's stored on the blockchain. And so our technology makes sure that the counter receipt and the object move as one. The counter receipt is part of the decompression and opening of the file. So you won't be able to open the file without the blockchain entry. So they have to move together. I always tell people it's kind of like that uh, cruel trick at a party. If you don't want your, your friend who's had a bit too much to drink to drive home, you just have to go and take his distributor cap out of his car and uh, his car's going nowhere. And so something as small as a distributor cap is so critical to the functioning of the vehicle. Uh, we take something very small and critical out of files that prevent them from having value if the blockchain doesn't assign the right uh, to the next right bearer. However, the converse is also true. The bulk of the file sits off the blockchain, and if you want to delete it for privacy, you can. And by studying that critical part that remains on the blockchain, studying the distributor in great detail will, in our construction, tell you nothing about the car. And so we are privacy preserving in that the content remains off the blockchain, but the control is put on the blockchain. So the combination of how the files are constructed uh, with our specialized compute node, we can execute all financial uh, compliance, uh, all data compliance, and keep privacy, uh, which for us was, a, was a, um, a difficult design goal, but we're very pleased with the result. Thank you very much, Andrew Kessler, CTO and co-founder of Zanotta.